You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1 once again. In choosing the book of Colossians at this time of year, I think sometimes you realize that when we preach right through books rather than by a liturgical calendar or something like that, you have to watch how the book is going to intersect with times of the year and certainly times like Easter or Christmas. And I was very mindful of that in choosing this book. The next five or six verses I'll be treating, just three today and a few next week, are really the core and the trunk of this book. And the fact that we would deal with them on this Sunday and Palm Sunday seemed to me to be a very appropriate thing in lifting up Christ, as this passage very remarkably does. I'll actually begin with verse 13, just to back up a little bit, and then come forward and read 15 through 17 of Colossians 1, which are the concern today. Listen to God's holy word. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Father, may we grasp the mighty revelation that is in these few sentences and live our lives fortified by the strength of this revelation. For Jesus' sake, amen. Certain human heroes have a tendency to grow larger in their greatness and stature, particularly if they have an untimely death. After that death, they seem much larger than life. I doubt if there's any example we could think of in American history that would exhibit this better than Abraham Lincoln. From the standpoint of which we view Lincoln today, you might think he was always a great man and regarded as such. That is not the case at all. As he came into the White House and even through his entire term in the White House. Lincoln was lampooned by thousands of people. The editorial cartoonists had a field day with him. They liked to portray him as a kind of hairy gorilla in some of their cartoons. They said he was an imbecile, a backwoodsman, an ignoramus, and far worse things. And yet, as we know, after freeing the slaves in the United States and patiently suffering as he presided over a bitter and terrible war in our country and brought that war to a conclusion only 
to have an untimely assassination just days after the peace was declared. Lincoln was projected into a stratosphere of fame occupied by few other people. His larger-than-life image just seems to loom over Washington and our national life to this very day. Now, I want you to think about another president. And I know you will conclude before I'm done with this example that it's ridiculous, but I want you to try this idea on for size for a moment. It's just past 45 years since the assassination of another president, John F. Kennedy. President Kennedy certainly had a talent for politics. He was, in my opinion, one of the best orators of all our modern presidents. Suppose that in the 45 years since his death, a cult had been formed in our country and had hundreds of thousands of people who belonged to this cult. The basis of the cult would be the declaration that today the spirit of John F. Kennedy was actually the incarnate Son of God on earth and that he now reigns in the highest heaven as God's appointed Lord over all of creation. How would you react to the belief of that cult? I know what you'd say. You would say, how ridiculous. What about the revelations of the habitual affairs of this man? What about his inept handling of a number of uh, different policy matters in his short presidency? What about different aspects of moral corruption that have been revealed in the time since his death. You can't tell me someone like that is the Son of God. And after all, he certainly didn't do any miracles. He didn't rise from the dead. How do you expect me to worship this man who lived only 45 years ago in our national life? Well, of course I agree with you. And I gave you that idea so that you might understand and be able to think a little bit of what a marvelous and amazing thing it was that just 30 years, less than 45, 30 years after his death on a Jerusalem cross, Jesus of Nazareth was exalted by the Apostle Paul and by many thousands of other people as the highest name, the highest person, and given the highest status in all the universe. Is that not an astounding claim to make about a human being who lived on the earth in just 30 years' time? Jesus was given fame of being the equal of God in every way. And Paul wrote this not as some lonely voice, but as one of hundreds of thousands already at this point when in 30 or 60 A.D. approximately, 60 or 62 when he wrote this letter, who would have said, yes, this Galilean peasant was the presence of God on the earth. Why was that notion not universally rejected as the notion would be that I propose to you for John F. Kennedy. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is a very concentrated summary of exactly 
who and what Christians believed Jesus Christ was. It comes to us in short epigrams, short phrases that sound almost like a creed, and some think that perhaps it was something that was said separately in the worship of the church. We can't prove that. I'm splitting these verses 15 through 20 into two parts, and even then dealing with them too fast in two weeks. But I want you to see in these a vibrant summation about who the Christ of God truly is. Here is theology that is woven into a fabric of doxology. And here is a premier statement about Christ that ranks with all the great statements of the New Testament that you would produce. The first chapter of John, for example. The first few verses of Hebrews. The portion of the hymn to Christ in Philippians 2. The declaration of the Lamb at the throne in Revelation 5. This passage right here ranks with all of those in the majesty that it ascribes to the crucified, risen, ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. And when you would intelligently grasp what the apostle is saying here by the inspiration of God's Spirit, I believe you have in hand the greatest possible safeguard against the kinds of errors that can be made in thinking about Christ. And those errors were being made by people coming into the Colossian church. That's why Paul said some of the things he said. Similarly today, every possible error that Christianity could invent, and you can't invent any new ones that haven't already been heard, are rebuked when you comprehend the doctrine of Christ as it is given here. Christ is the core of biblical doctrine. Every line of prophecy leads to him. He is the head, the source, the heartbeat, the climax of everything that we might know about God and all that God is doing in this present world and the world to come. No subject could possibly be more important to any time or any people on earth than to Understand this hymn to Christ as we look just at verses 15 to 17 today of Colossians 1. It declares for us a comprehensive vision of total reality with a focal point in Jesus, the man once of earth who is the Christ of God. Now, I backed up and began in 13 so you would see that Indeed, in verses 13 and 14, Paul mentions God's Son whom he loves, who's the basis of redemption. That's his launching pad for what he says in verse 15. Let me remind you of 15 again. As Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Our first point is to compare Christ to the God of creation. Now, you would understand that it certainly is a problem to any religion that would say God is unseen, that how will we know anything about Him? How will we be able to make any sure statements about Him if we've never seen Him? And yet, of course, the Bible does declare, the Old Testament declares, no man has seen God at any time. 
But here we have it declared to us that when we look upon Jesus, we are looking on the visible image of what God is. And I would put this passage, and many commentators will mention to you the similarity of this passage to John 1.18 that says, No man has ever seen God, but God, the only Son who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. When we studied Genesis a number of weeks and months ago, in the early part of Genesis when we were looking at creation, we heard about man's image, or God's image, I'm sorry, in man. God putting in us His own image. It's hard to know everything that means, but it certainly means the idea of rational thought, language, spiritual communication, comprehension of things that people, animals that react to their senses do not have abstract thinking of the kind that man is given to have. And yet, when we, see, when we speak about the image of God in humans generally, all of us in this room, we're speaking about a resemblance to God, all right? And it's, it's a general resemblance. It's, a, it's an approximate resemblance. It's not an exact resemblance. And it certainly is marred by our sin. It's been twisted and disfigured. My wife might declare that one of our grandsons bears a resemblance to me, but someone else could come along and say, no, he, he looks like the other side of the family. And, and you could debate that back and forth because it's only an approximate resemblance. But when we look at the word for the image of God in Colossians 1.15, the word is icon that means an exact replica. A replica of the kind that the image of George Washington represents stamped on every quarter in any pocket or purse where it could be found today. If we all pulled our quarters out and looked, you would not be able to say, oh, look, George Washington's different there, or he's a little different here. He's the same because he was replicated from a master die at the U.S. Mint, stamped in a perfect likeness. Whether or not it's a perfect likeness of the man might be argued but it's certainly a perfect likeness of the metal die which stamped the coin. And so it is with Jesus, the icon of God, the perfect image of God. Nothing we need to know about God can fail to be learned from observing Christ. And so when Jesus made what sounded at the moment that he spoke it, an astounding audacious claim for which Jews wanted to stone him on the spot. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He was doing nothing but speaking the unvarnished truth as he knew it. Maybe you'd want to know what Alexander the Great looked like, a man who lived long before there was photography. And I believe artists have certainly done marble busts or other kinds of portraiture of Alexander the Great. Now wonder how much any of them actually resemble the man. Did they work from him in life or were they simply doing an imaginative portrait with heroic uh, handsomeness and the way they wanted him to look? Were they using artistic license? Could you say there in that marble bust, that's Alexander, that's the perfect image? Well, you'd probably have to realize you're only guessing. But if, on the other hand, you wanted to know what John Light looks like here in our congregation, 
our associate pastor, you could say, well, John Light, I can look at photographs of him. And better than that, I can look at John Light. And I've heard his voice, and I've learned his personality, and I've had some sense of what he's like. I have a good idea of what John Light is like. When early church theologians gathered in councils to weigh up and measure and evaluate what the Bible claimed about Christ, and of course they did that because enemies were saying wrong things and distorted things, the theologians sat down at one of their greatest councils, and when they arose with a conclusion, it had to do with the exactitude of a Greek word. When they said that Christ was of the same substance with the Father. There were those who wanted to say he was of like substance. The theologians condemned that opinion. They said the Bible declares he is of the same substance with the Father. They were echoing passages such as you heard early in the service today. Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of of his being. Jesus Christ was a mirror's image of God in words that he spoke, in things that he did, in attitudes he conveyed, and in no other way so greatly as in the miracles that he worked. That's why his miracles are so important. They weren't just little wonder shows. They were credentials of his Godhead. And they told us when he silenced the waves of the sea or raised the dead or multiplied loaves of bread that here was one who partook of the same power, not of this world, power that summoned matter into being or caused matter and material things to rearrange themselves in ways that no human force was known to be able to do. Now, there's an additional matter to notice here when we compare Christ to the God of creation, and that is in the word that occurs in verse 15, the word firstborn. There's the possibility of a real misunderstanding over this. If you are the oldest of several children, you would tell people, well, I'm the firstborn among my siblings. You're talking about birth order, of course. And that's probably the more natural assumption people make when they encounter this word, that it means born first with others following after. But there's a real possibility of mistaken idea if you take it that way, and we do not believe that is the way Paul was speaking. He used another sense here when he said firstborn. He referred to the unique status of the firstborn son in a family in ancient times and even right on up to our own day. As you know, the rule in England, they called it the rule of primogenitor, the idea that the firstborn son was the heir. He inherited the estate. He carried on the family. If there was a second or third son, I know in England years ago, the the second or third knew, well, I better be a lawyer uh, or I could go into the military, but I'm not going to inherit the family lands. My older brother will get that. He has the status. He has the rank of firstborn That's the sense in which Paul means this here. Not as though Jesus was born in any biological way. He was indeed as a creature of earth, but not in the eternal sense of his being. There was no time when Jesus was suddenly 
not exist in one moment and then born the next. That's not what we're being taught here. We're being taught about his remarkably unique rank or status as the heir of all that the Father is. Ezekiel chapter 1 has a little noticed passage. It's not a book we study that much, I'm afraid. Ezekiel one twenty six tells of a vision of that prophet in which he saw the throne of God, and he uses language which is paralleled in Revelation. In fact, Revelation actually refers to Ezekiel in a number of ways. He saw the throne of God shimmering, he says, like it was made of sapphire. And Ezekiel says he saw a figure like that of a man who looked like glowing metal. In Ezekiel 128, the prophet concluded that this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Now, when Ezekiel saw a man who represented the glory of God, put that together with what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, when he preached to us and told us that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God dwelt in the face of Christ. You can see in both Old Testament and New Testament the declaration that Jesus truly was the visible likeness of the invisible God. The invisible God became visible in him. So we call him Emmanuel, God with us. You see, in his human form, in the form of Jesus, God came within the range of the sensory perceptions of men. He had a voice. He had a face. He walked. He laughed, I'm sure. He wept. He suffered. And people could see and observe and understand as if in a scientific experiment, here is what God is like. God the Father was perfectly represented in God the Son. We can compare Christ to the God of creation. All right, then, in the second place, Paul goes forward in another major point. I have one more point with several subpoints. When he now comes in verses 16 and 17 to teach us about Christ as Lord over the creation. Let me remind you what he says. By him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible things, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a wonderful mouthful those two verses are. And I can't barely scratch their surface. But we see the occasion of this in the fact that apparently people were telling the Colossian believers that they ought to pay attention to angels. And in fact, not only angels, but there were other supernatural beings in the hierarchy of heaven who had to be regarded carefully and thought about and prayed to. And and I'm sure these teachers had names for some of them and ranks and, and, and told the Colossians, now, knowing this angel or knowing this ruler of a heavenly realm is the way to get to God. This you need. You need this knowledge. And so they started a folk religion in which people prayed to all kinds of intermediaries between man and God. Well, Paul 
swatted this false doctrine with a sledgehammer. It was only a fly, but his sledgehammer smashed it. By suggesting that since Christ is one with God, he is therefore the original creator, and anyone, any angel, demon, or heavenly power is like so much chaff which he would blow away with his breath because he made it and he commands it and he is the superior of that being. A couple subpoints here. First, Paul paints Christ as creation's author. By him, all things were created. Remember in Genesis, we heard that intriguing echo when creation story was being told of, of a plural voice, let us make man in our image. No mistake, as Moses wrote Genesis, a plural pronoun. Father, Son, and Spirit were cooperating in the original work of the cosmos. John chapter 1, verse 3 says that through Him, the eternal Word, or Christ, through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Think of it. Let your imagination run. The tiniest subatomic particles, the helix structure, that amazing structure of the DNA in our bodies that we're only starting to understand that unlocks all the secrets of what we are and every disease that afflicts us. The galaxies of stars and planets, the Himalayan mountains, the depths of the oceans. He made all those. They were made by him. One commentator wrote this. He said, every form of matter, simple or complex, the atom, the star, the sun, the cloud of dirt, every order of intellect or unseen being above us, the splendor of a night sky, the greening phenomena of springtime, all these are products of Christ, the firstborn who acted as the Father's construction supervisor in creation. He is creation's author. But this, it says more, another sub-point. Verse 16 says, not only by Christ were all things made, but they were made for Christ. He is creation's goal. And this assures us that the natural universe and our lives in it aren't just spinning off into meaningless chaos. We have a personal God. And history is doing the bidding of this personal God and Savior. And while we don't always read the patterns of the blueprints that he's working by, we can be certain that he does. Some of the most fascinating reading I've done in recent years is in the whole school of scientific inquiry. And if you're a scientific person, you really need to be doing some reading in the whole field of what is called intelligent design today. Darwin's theories are still proudly taught, but Darwin's theories have basically been demolished for the most part. You should read some of the works of men like Dr. Michael Behe of nearby Lehigh University. As they write about life operating and being constructed not by random selection, and these men are not theologians, they are scientists, and they don't even use the word God that much. They use the word design, but that's enough as they show that even in the motor-like flagellum tail of a one-celled paramecium, 
there is there if you get into it and see it under an electron microscope, a biological machine so irreducibly complex that it could not have just happened and it could not have evolved. It either was there working or it wasn't. And it shows a marvelous designer's hand. It was not produced by chaos or chance. A man named Peter Lewis wrote this. In the last 200 years, man has explained his world in terms of impersonal physics. And when we do this, he said, we are left consequently with a cold, mechanistic universe in which humanity has no ultimate meaning or purpose. However, Scripture tells us the supreme fact of created reality is not a mathematical formula, but a divine person. You see, the grand drama of redemption will climax when this person appears to take up his final visible reign over heaven and earth because creation was made for him, and it will climax in him. One more thing as a sub-point of Christ as Lord over creation is that Christ is creation's sustainer. What a marvelous statement is in verse 17 when it says, In him all things hold together. You know, Christ is not like the manufacturer of some refrigerator you might have bought once upon a time that had a one-year or maybe a two-year warranty, and, and the manufacturer made it, and it ran fine for a year or two, but the understanding was very clear between you and the refrigerator manufacturer that after that warranty expired, you were on your own. And if the refrigerator stopped functioning, that is your problem. Whatever this creator, the Lord Christ, creates, he maintains and sustains. It's due to him that ocean tides can be predicted. It's due to him that microscopic electrons revolving within, you know, the nucleus of of little molecules keep going in those wonderful patterns. It's because of him that the moons of Jupiter can be predicted in their paths. It's because of his sustaining that your heart has been beating at a constant rate for however many years and months and weeks and days and minutes that you have been alive. In other words, Christ is the foundation of what many people want to call the laws of nature. If he withdrew his sustaining power, the universe truly would collapse into chaos. So in conclusion, we say this in these few verses. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 presents Christ as the agent of God in all of his glorious purposes, forming creation in the first place, carrying it forward to a divinely ordained ending. Shouldn't we be able to conclude from this that all who know this Christ as their Savior and Redeemer and Lord know that his universe holds no final terrors for us? For the same gracious Savior who died for us, who took our place and died, is the one who rose in power, the creator, the ruler, the goal of all existence, is the Jesus I call my Savior. 
And when Paul wrote here about him, he's not only all supreme, he's all sufficient. We don't need another Lord. Why would you look anywhere else? You know, if you're buying a car, sure, you're going to go to several dealers, compare models, then you figure the model you want. Maybe you still go to a couple dealers and compare price and features. That's a good thing to do in car shopping. But why would you do that in looking for a sufficient Savior? There isn't anyone that's even in the same field as him. He is immense. He is huge. He is a colossus. No one approaches him in any aspect or any feature of the sufficiency that he offers to us. And you see, seeing him as he is is going to keep us from heresy. Some people love to go and study the intricate doctrines of every cult. And that's a worthwhile field that some people certainly have to do. But I've always had the attitude that I'm really, all right, I'm, I'm glad to be generally aware of what a cult says that's wrong, but I'm not going to waste a lot of time on it. Because nearly every cult goes wrong about Christ. And if you really know who Christ is from the Scripture, you won't go wrong. You'll recognize right away the counterfeit. If you have submitted your life to the biblical Lord Jesus Christ, your life is Christ-centered. We shouldn't use that phrase lightly. You're Christ-centered in the way that a magnet turns every compass needle in its direction. He is an object of such fascination that you can never stop learning about him. You can gaze on him. You can study him. You can hear his words over and over. And as you hear them now and again and ten years from now and all the time you live, you will be lost in wonder love and praise at what you learn about him. Do you know this Christ? Do you appreciate this Christ? When you belong to him, you occupy a position of such privilege, there is no greater possible privilege for you in the whole universe than to belong to him. We can expect Jesus Christ, Lord of all, to be the one who will stretch our puny minds, dominate our futile thinking, and change us in all our sinfulness into His glorious image day by day, degree by degree, until we are perfected when we see Him face to face. For about Him we can say, from Him, through Him, Unto Him are all things, and so to Him be all glory forever and ever. Amen. Our God, hallelujah, what a Savior. What a thing you did when you presented your only begotten at your right hand and brought him as a baby into this world and took him to a cross and let him be resurrected before human witnesses who wouldn't believe it unless they knew it had happened. What a thing you did. How can we ever stop praising you for such a Savior? May we never cease. May our praise and our trust and our hope in him only grow every day to your glory and praise. 
Amen.